Mark 7, starting at verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law, who had come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it's written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might have otherwise have received from me is korban, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared, all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit. Lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. And now we come to the passage we're going to be looking at this evening. Jesus left that place and went into the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. The word of the Lord. People of God, I'd like for you to think with me for a couple of seconds about ways that you would describe Jesus if somebody asked you to describe Jesus to them. 
I know that if somebody asked me to describe Jesus, I would say, oh, Jesus, he's kind and he's good. He's caring and compassionate and holy and righteous and worthy of praise. And these things are all true. I'm confident that if I asked one of you to describe Jesus, that no one would say that Jesus was callous or rude or maybe even ethnocentric. And yet a quick read through the passage that we're looking at this evening gives us that sort of idea, doesn't it? Jesus seems hesitant to heal the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. And when he's pressed on it, he tells a parable in which he compares her and compares her people to dogs. The story is a hard one. It's a rough one. It seems to be a discordant note in what's otherwise a beautiful melody, the Gospel of Mark. But it gets worse, doesn't it? Because we believe that the Bible doesn't just speak to people in the original context, but it speaks to us today. And so if Jesus is speaking harshly to Gentiles, then what was at first a quick story that we might pass over quickly becomes a sharp critique of, I'm guessing, almost everyone here this evening. So what's Jesus doing here? Why does he speak so harshly? Is he trying to exclude this woman to treat her like an outsider? What I hope to show this evening is that it's in fact the opposite, that far from trying to establish an ethnic identity or religious rituals as the foundation of who are the people of God, that in this story we come to see that it's humble faith in Jesus Christ and not an ethnic identity and not religious rituals that make up the people of God. And so we're going to be looking at that in three parts. First, we're going to be taking a look at Gentile dogs. Then we're going to be taking a look at uh, children of God, and last, faith in Christ. Those are going to be the three points that we have this evening. We're going to be talking about first Gentile dogs. So Jesus leaves the place that he had been staying, and he goes to the vicinity of Tyre. Now, this is the area uh, called Syrian Phoenicia, and that's in fact why this woman is called a Syrio-Phoenician woman. It's distinguished from Libyan Phoenicia, which is in North Africa. But this is uh, a place that he is going to keep his presence a secret. We're not told why it is that Jesus wants to keep his presence a secret, but we know in other times he takes some time away because he's tired. Sometimes he takes his disciples with him so he can spend some time teaching his disciples. But whatever the reason, if Jesus wanted to keep his presence secret, Syrian Phoenicia is the perfect place to do it. It had a ton of Gentiles, very few Jews, And so maybe the fame of Jesus had spread all throughout Galilee where Jesus had been doing his work, and perhaps it hadn't gotten yet to Syrian Phoenicia. But we find that, in fact, immediately, as soon as he gets there, a woman comes and falls at his feet, finds him, and asks him to heal her daughter. Now, we're given three descriptors of who this woman is. And uh, it reads sort of like a crescendo of demerit these three descriptors. The first descriptor is that she's a woman. And at this time, rabbis often would not associate with women. For whatever reason, sometimes when women would come to speak with rabbis, the rabbis would not respond. They didn't want to associate at times with women. And so the fact that this woman was a woman who came to speak with him uh, is a first strike against her. It may be that Jesus, being a teacher or rabbi, is not going to respond to her. The second strike is more serious, far more serious. It's that she's Greek, and that means that she's a Gentile. 
a non-Jew. And those of us who have read the Old Testament, I, I hope many here have, know that Israel was told to keep themselves from Gentile nations. They were said, don't intermarry with them. Don't associate with them. Gentiles will bring their idolatry. They will pollute your people. So keep yourselves pure from the Gentiles. In fact, sometimes they were told to come in and, and kill whole cities of Gentiles. But the third strike against her is the most serious, and that it's that she's from Syrian Phoenicia. You see, Syrian Phoenicia and Israel had had a really storied past. Uh, Israel and, and Tyre, which is the city, the region of Tyre in Syrian Phoenicia, had started out friends. In fact, at the time of Solomon, the temple was built with cedar that had come from Tyre. But what was a friendship quickly, quickly spiraled downward to the two being enemies. Jezebel was from Tyre, from Syrian Phoenicia. And from Tyre, Jezebel came and brought idolatry to Israel. And so people, when they remembered this region, they remembered Jezebel and the wickedness and the idolatry that she brought. The prophets Ezekiel and Zechariah had both decried both the wealth and the arrogance of Tyre. They said that judgment was going to be coming from the Lord upon this area. More than that, there was a time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And at this time, Israel had come under the authority of a foreign government. They were not an independent nation. But there was an uprising, an uprising to free Israel from the power of this nation that they had been uh, oppressed under. There's a man named Judas Maccabeus who led a revolt, got several people behind him, and just when it looked like he had achieved peace and had achieved independence for Israel, Tyre rose up. Tyre, from the region of Syrian Phoenicia, went to war against Israel to try to replace them under the authority of this foreign government. And at the time of Jesus, Tyre was still oppressing the people of Israel. It was a very wealthy area. It always had been. And so there were times of famine when the people of Tyre would buy up the food that was in Galilee. And people in Israel would literally starve while the people of Tyre would eat. Josephus was a historian at this time. And he said that the people of Tyre in Syrian Phoenicia were notoriously Israel's most bitter enemies. And, you know, I've thought for a while about a way that I could illustrate that for us today, and, and I really can't think of a good illustration. I mean, these people were enemies, and they had been enemies for years upon years upon years. Not only were they enemies, but they were oppressing the people of Israel to that very day. And not only were they oppressing that people, but they had brought idolatry, and with idolatry, judgment on the people of Israel. There's really no way to describe how... Uh, how, how much tension would exist between these two people. And so in this context, we might expect bitter words or harsh words from Jesus. And at first, it seems like that's what we get. He says a brief parable. He says, first, let the children eat all they want, for it's not right to take the children's bread and to feed it to their dogs. It's not very hard for us to discover what the meaning of this parable is. What Jesus is saying is, first, let my teachings and my miracles be given to Israel. Because it's not right to take my teachings or my miracles and give it to Gentile dogs. Now, why so harsh? I mean, surely politeness isn't too much for Jesus. 
Why couldn't Jesus just say, I'm sorry, I can't help you? Well, it's something that deserves a a closer look. And for that closer look, uh, we turn to our second point, which is sons of God. Now, there are three clues that were given in this story, three clues as to why Jesus is not trying to exclude this woman, not trying to separate himself from her, but is trying to draw her in. The first clue is actually his use of the word first. He says, first let the children eat all they want. And so what sounds to be a total refusal is actually not that, isn't it? The fact that he uses the word first indicates that there might be a second. Yeah, first the children will eat, but perhaps there's a place for seconds. So perhaps this use of first doesn't indicate that he's refusing her, but he's indicating a priority of mission. First he's coming to the Jews, and second to the Gentiles. The second clue that we have that Jesus is not trying to exclude this woman is actually, and interestingly, the use of the word dog in this passage. Now the word here that's used in Mark 7 is kind of a curious Greek word. It's used only twice in the whole of the New Testament. It's used here in Mark 7, and it's also used in Matthew when Matthew tells the story of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman. It's only used in relation to the Syrophoenician woman. Now there were two different words for dog at that time, in this society. The first was one uh, for the mangy beasts that would sort of rove through the streets, carry with them all sorts of impurity and uncleanness. Now, this use of dog had been used by some rabbis to talk about Gentiles. They thought it really fitting. These group of people that were unclean needed to be avoided, mangy mongrels that we should keep ourselves from. But that's not what Jesus uses here. He uses a very different word. He uses a word that would be used to describe a house pet or a lap dog. Someone you'd keep in the house with you, let your children play with. Someone that was inside the house. And you know, there are some commentators who look at this and say, you know, this actually isn't an insult at all. Jesus is complimenting her by saying that she's a dog. And I can't go that far with them, but it does do something very interesting, doesn't it? In the story, in the narrative that Jesus created, he places Gentiles inside the house. So the fact that he refers to her as this kind of dog places her inside the house with the children. Now the third thing that we can see that gives us uh, a clue as to how Christ is not refusing her is actually the most clear, isn't it? It's that he heals her daughter. I mean, if Jesus is saying, my teaching and my miracles are only for my children, then what does he immediately do? He gives her his teaching. He gives her this miracle. And in so doing, he's showing her that you are not, in fact, on the outside, but you are a child. It's really quite amazing. Martin Luther says that this woman rejoices in her humble position. And Jesus treats her not as a dog, but as a child, as a daughter. And you know, it's worth noting, it's, it's really worth noting that uh, it would, the response of the woman, she says, first, let the children, or she says, the, the dogs underneath the table get to eat the scraps. 
And it's this response that brings Jesus' uh, reply, positive reply, and leads her to, him to heal the daughter. And it's worth noting that uh, it's only somebody that's very wealthy that would think that there would be enough food on the table that it would spill over and go to the dogs. And so many commentators think that Jesus is telling this woman a parable that she's uniquely in a place to understand, uniquely in a place to respond to, being from a wealthy area of Tyre. She could respond knowing, yeah, even the dogs underneath the table get to eat of the children's food. It's very brilliant. In fact, what's happening here is continuing the process of reversal that we see all throughout Mark 7. What happens first? Well, at the very beginning, Jesus comes into contact with some Pharisees, right? They see, uh, they see Jesus' disciples were, uh, eating with unclean hands. And they chastise them for that. And when we come into contact with these Pharisees at the beginning of Mark 7, we see, oh, these are the insiders here. You see, if anyone was to be an insider in this time, it was the Pharisees. It was the teachers of the law. They had the the chief position. They were looked to and respected the most above any other people. So as we come to the beginning of Mark 7, we see, oh, some insiders. And yet, Jesus' words for the insiders are unequivocally negative. He says that they have let go of the commands of God, that they're holding on to the tradition of men. He says that they're not listening to Moses. He says that Isaiah prophesied about them, saying these people honor me with their lips, but that their hearts are far from me. In fact, he comes to these insiders, these Pharisees, and he treats them as outsiders because they don't understand. They don't see him. They don't believe in him. Then what does he do directly after that? He declares all foods clean, right? This is another dramatic reversal because so much of Israelite life was was dictated by food laws, making sure that they were eating only clean foods. But Christ takes those laws and he flips them on the head. He says, everything is clean. All foods are clean now. And immediately after saying that, he goes into Syrian Phoenicia and provides an object lesson of this. He says, not only are all foods clean, but all people are clean now. He goes and provides an object lesson treating the Syrian Phoenician woman as a daughter, saying that even here my children can be found. Now far from trying to exclude this woman, what we see here is in fact really the dramatic fulfillment of Psalm 87. Let me read Psalm 87 for you for a second. This is amazing. It says this, He has set His foundation on the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are said of you, O city of God. I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me. Philistia, too, and Tyre, along with Cush. And I will say, this one was born in Zion. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying Psalm 87 is being fulfilled. He comes into this region of Israel's most bitter enemies, treats this woman as a daughter, and in so doing, is saying Psalm 87 is being fulfilled. This one was born in Zion. And praise the Lord, praise the Lord that not only in Israel, but also in Syrian Phoenicia, 
God's children can be found. Because it means for us that not only in Israel, but also in Elmhurst, Illinois, God's children can be found. And this is something that we know, right? If we know Jesus, if we belong to this church or another Bible-believing church, and if we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we realize that God is in the business of coming to his enemies and making them his children. In fact, that's what he did with us. For we were at one time enemies, and yet he took us made us children, no longer enemies, but loved children. Now, how does he do this? It's by faith in Christ. Our third and our final point, faith in Christ. You see, it's faith in, in Jesus that receives such a glowing response from Jesus. It's implicit here in the story in Mark But in Matthew, it's explicit. After they have their little battle of wits, after he says, even the dogs under the table can eat the children's children's crumbs, he says, woman, how great is your faith? You see, it's her faith. It's her faith that enables her to be on the inside, a child of God, one accepted by Jesus. And this is, in fact, the message of all of Mark. It's all about faith, all throughout. In Mark 2, there's a paralyzed man, and Jesus heals him, and he says, your faith has healed you. Or in Mark 5, there's a woman who's been dealing with bleeding, and Jesus heals her, and in so doing, he says, your faith has healed you. Whenever he chastises his disciples, it's for their lack of faith. It's faith. It's not the tradition of men. It's not an ethnic identity. It's not religious rituals. It's faith in Christ that makes up the people of God. Nothing else. And this woman did have great faith. John Calvin put it this way. He said this woman's faith was extraordinarily remarkable because she was someone who had a a sliver, a, a sliver of Jesus' teaching, and yet she still believed that he could heal her daughter. It's great faith. And it makes up the people of God. So what does this mean for us today? Well, I think it means three things for us. Three things that I want for us to take away. The first is this. Is that it is true that it's not an ethnic identity, it's not a religious ritual that makes up the people of God, but it's faith in Christ. We need to recognize this when we speak about other people and when we interact with other people. I had a professor in college. His name is John Lanzma. He taught me Greek. He grew up in Grand Rapids, the son of a a Baptist minister, the grandson of a Baptist minister. He said that his grandfather would walk to his church and that sometimes the Christian reform people would hide in the bushes and actually pelt him with rotten vegetables as he would walk to his church. And he he said this with a smile because he wanted to make fun of me and my people. But uh, there was also some pain in the story, knowing that because this man didn't hold the same views on baptism, he was treated as an outsider. People of God, he was our brother. And we treated him like an outsider. And I think that there's still the temptation to act the same way. 
there's a friend of mine that I go to seminary with. He's being received into the Roman Catholic Church. He's leaving the, Christ, he's leaving the Christian Reformed Church. He's becoming Catholic. I've called him and I've said, why are you doing this? Why are you leaving our tradition, the Protestant tradition? And the biggest reason that he gives me is that so often he says Reformed people are unkind. He says he can't deal with it. He says that he's been so mistreated that he wants to go somewhere else. And we really can cannibalize our own. People who don't agree with us in every particular way. People of God, we need to realize that these people are our brothers and are our sisters. And we need to watch our tongue when we speak about them. We need to recognize that their faith makes them our brothers and our sisters. And I don't know how you interact with your siblings, but me, I I might want to punch my brother but he's still my brother. And we may disagree, but we disagree like siblings. Always with love. That's the, way we need to, that's the way we need to interact with those who believe in Jesus. The second thing that we need to take from this is that it may be that there are times where we feel like we're far from God. That he's distant. That he doesn't listen to us. Maybe we feel as though our own sin keeps us from him. Maybe there's even a sin that you are caught in and you feel as though you are an enemy of God and that God could never receive you, never accept you. What this story tells us is that God is in the practice of coming to his most bitter enemies and treating them as children. And so what that means for us is that Jesus is always willing to receive. You can never become too much an enemy of Jesus Christ. He's always willing to receive you. And so if you feel far from him, if you feel as though he's distant, come to him because he always receives. Even his most bitter enemies. If you believe in him, if you trust in him, you will become his child, his son, or his daughter. Not be an outsider, but be an insider. And the last thing that we're to take from this is that it's not just that we need to believe, but that Christ actually creates that faith in us. He creates that community of faith. And we know how he did it, don't we? Well, he did it by himself becoming an outsider. You see, he was taken outside the city walls. And once he was there, he was treated like a dog. And he was beaten, he was whipped, and he was hung from a tree. And he died. But you see, he rose again. And in so doing, he created this community of faith. He gave us the gift of faith so that we might believe in him, that we might be a part of his family. And so even this faith in Christ is a gift from him, a gift that comes from Jesus, and an amazing, remarkable gift that makes us children, sons, and daughters. And this knowledge should lead us to rejoice in who our Savior is and rejoice in the fact that we are his children. 
And so people of God, as we leave this place, as we live our lives, I want us to remember this. I want us to remember that God makes his enemies his children. He did it by his own death, by being an outsider, by being treated as a dog, and he makes us his own. Let's praise God for that. It's amazing and beautiful. Amen.